We want to introduce uh, Dickie Knowles here, has agreed to come and speak to us today. Um, obviously, he's uh, the, the announcements, uh, he played for the Phillies, and of course, I got a couple things from the internet, which I won't talk about too much, but what's, uh, 1979 started with the Phillies, then went to the Cubs in 82, and the Rangers in 84, 86, the Indians, 87, back to the Cubs, and the Tigers, and the Orioles in 88, and back to the Phillies, something like that anyway, but, um, and, and just introducing myself this morning, uh, for the last 25-ish years or so, he's still with the Phillies organization, working as an, uh, in the employee assistant program, so looking forward to hearing about that, uh, why don't you come, up, come on up, we'll say a quick little prayer, and uh, we'll get going, all right, so dear Heavenly Father, we just... Uh, Commend this time to you. We look forward to the message that uh, Dickie, Dickie Knowles will bring to, to us men here at the church. Uh, we just ask you uh, make all of our conversations and the lessons honorable to you. And uh, may we just uh, have a, a great interaction with, with Dickie Knowles. And we just ask you uh, bless this time. Amen. All right. Dickie Knowles. Well, good morning. I get to use the mic, right? Can you take the mic out? I think I will. Well, I, I, I just want to go over a couple things real quick and get them out of the way. How many people in here remember 1980? How many people were at the game in 1980? That's it? The last time I spoke, there was, there was a lot of people when I spoke at this place, and I said, how many people were at the game in 1980? They all raised their hand, including a 14-year-old boy. I was going, I don't think so. No, I'm just teasing about that. I don't know how many people say that. Everywhere I go, people say they were there in 1980. But uh, anybody, everybody here grew up in Philadelphia or no? All right. How many people grew up in Philadelphia? Okay, quite a bit. I didn't understand the Philadelphia thing when I first got signed in baseball by the Philadelphia Phillies. They drafted me in 1975, and I signed with the Phillies. And, you know, according to 1975, I'm out of Charlotte, North Carolina, so I know I'll talk kind of fast for you Yankees. And I know I'll say a lot of words you guys never heard before, you know, so don't worry about that. Ain't is a word in North Carolina. It's becoming a word up here. And uh, I used to couldn't say moccasin. And I, I played moccasin run the other day at the golf course. I used to couldn't say that. I, I had a speech impediment as a kid, and I couldn't say a lot of things. But anyway, um, you know, just going back to 1980, I really got a really a big flavor of what was going on in Philadelphia. But does anybody know this? The 1980 was the first world championship in our history. You remember that, right? I have the World Series ring on. This is our first one ever. I mean, it was the only one. I didn't know that. So I signed with the Phillies in 1975. Dallas Green's the general manager. He calls my grandmother, and he can't find me. And he says, uh, this is Dickie Knowles. I mean, this is Dallas Green. Uh, I'm looking for Dickie. And he said, well, this, my grandmother said, this is his grandmother. This is Merle Suggs. And I, can I help you, Mr. Green? She, he goes, well, I've drafted him. And she goes, well, I don't know where he is. And he's like, well, that ain't good. And she goes, but when he comes in, I'll tell him to give you a call. So I came in, and my grandmother told me. And back in them days, you didn't, I, at least I didn't, think about getting drafted to play baseball. 69 Mets were my team at that time, and there's why. In 1969, we landed a man on the moon, but the Mets won the world championship. And I like Ron Swoboda for some reason, the way he wore his socks. And then I fell in love with the Phillies, and they wore those long stirrups. But that's another story. But I love the Mets because 
that was, you know, captured America, uh, the Mets did. And I started to watch. The only games you got back when I was a kid was a Saturday game of the week with Tony Kubek and, and Kirk Gowdy, and that was it. So I remember the Mets, man. They were popular, and I liked the Mets. You know, I loved them. But then I started liking the Braves as I fell in love with baseball, and Hank Aaron became my favorite player. So in 75, when I got found out I got drafted by the Philadelphia Phillies, this is absolutely no lie. In 75, I'm in high school, and I watched the game in Wrigley Field, and this number 20 comes up to hit with white shoes on and this blue uniform, so cool. Got the afro, and later on I followed that, and it's Michael Jack Smith. And I said, man, I like that guy. I started, I became a Philly fan. So when my grand, came, grandmother told me, you've been drafted by the Phillies, I went, no way. She goes, I wish the Braves would have drafted you, and I'm in my head going, I'm glad it was the Phillies. So they, Dallas Green calls you, so you got to call us, man. So, you know, I get on the phone. You know, we had one of them then in 1975, and I called. Dallas answered the phone, and I said, hey, Dallas, this is Dickie Knowles. I understand I'm supposed to call you. He said, yes, sir. Well, you've been drafted by the Phillies in the fourth round. I said, is that good? He goes, anytime you get drafted, kid, that's good. So I got a flavor of Dallas Green at that time. He said, now you get your butt on that plane tomorrow and get up to Auburn, New York, and you're going to start your career. Well, I said, Auburn? I thought I was going to Philadelphia. I told you I was a southerner. We don't think real you know, clear all the time. So I went up to Auburn, New York, and I started my career up there. In 1980, I remember being in the bullpen with the dogs. You remember the dogs? The dogs barking. I'm, Tug McGraw is on the mound facing Willie Wilson. And it's three balls and two strikes, and the bases are loaded, and the phone rang. And it's Dallas Green. And he says, Mike Ryan picks up the phone and says, Dickie, uh, get up on the mound. Dallas wants you going to be in. If he doesn't get Willie Wilson out, you're in. And I'm standing by the plexiglass door. And I said, hey, look, Irish. We called Mike Ryan Irish. Dallas Green is going to put me in this game, and this is going to be the first world championship in Philadelphia Philly history, and there's 9,000 people here now. We started with 66,000. By the time the last pitch was thrown, it was probably about 75,000 in there. You couldn't. There were people up the runway because I know all the guards and all the people that, because our culture at that time was right around that ballpark. So I'm sure all the guards and all the employees there, hey, come on over. The last out's going to be made. Come on over. We'll let you in because there was a lot of people there. And I said, Mike, you think Dallas Green's going to take Tug McGraw out and put me in? Because I wanted to go out that door right when he struck him out. And he said, stay right here. <laughs> Boom, strike three, we ran out on the field. I thought, hey, I'm 23 years old. I'm a world champion. Can't get much better than this. This is absolutely awesome. And, but for one moment, I stood and, you know, I looked up. And I looked around. I seen all those people. And I said, man, this is special for these people. That's when it hit me. And it hit me in the parade the next day, though I don't remember the parade. And I'll share it with you why in a little while. But I remember just walking off that field thinking, wow, this is special. Philadelphia is a special place. It's become a special place for me. It's a place where I call home now. My daughter lives down the road about 10 minutes from here. Maybe I can get her, her and her family start coming to church here. But the reason I share that story with you is because if it wasn't for 1980, nobody would know I'd play baseball. Because in, in, in Philadelphia is a unique town. I'm remembered for something, and somebody's already asked me about it, and I said I'll get that out of the way, for knocking down George Brett. Well, 1980, we're playing, and we play the greatest championship series ever. And it's, if you don't remember that series, you should find it and watch it. And if you're one of those people today that think baseball is boring and it needs to be sped up, don't watch that series. Because I've watched it. It's long, and it's 
one of the best. One of my favorite times is to watch the New York Yankees play the Boston Red Sox in a three-iron, 45-minute game that goes back and forth. I love those games. I don't know why the commissioner wants to speed it up. But we played the greatest championship series ever. We beat the Houston Astros. We go to the World Series. I was up every game in Houston. I pitched in two games. And the thing about it is when you're a kid, anybody ever want to be a Major League Baseball player in here? Anybody ever grow up wanting to be one? You wanted to be one? Okay, so in your backyard, what are you, what are you, when you practice in your backyard, whether you're throwing up a ball and hitting it or whatever, your, your backyard, you're practicing to be in the World Series. You want a game seven, bases loaded, home run, you hit it. Or strike three, you struck the guy out, second best thing in baseball other than hitting a baseball. So <clears throat> here I am, and we're, you know, I'm Kevin Sauchet and myself, we're in game four of the 1980 World uh, Series, Game one, I didn't pitch. Game two, I didn't pitch. And I pitched in the playoffs. Game three, I didn't pitch. And now we're in game four. And the Goodyear blimp's coming over, you know, and I'm sitting there watching that. And I go, Sauce, you know, all of our family and friends are watching this. And me and, me, me and him both had been in a ball game. So I looked at him and I said, Dallas is not pitching us, man. We, we got to get in a game somehow. Well, Larry Christensen started that day, and God bless him. I, I was not wanting to get in the game because Larry Christensen, but Larry Christensen had a bad first inning, first batter, boom, base hit, threw the ball away, went to third. Next guy, Brett had hemorrhoids that year. Everybody remember that? So Brett was coming back from the hemorrhoid operation, hit a ball down in a corner, slid in the third. Big, big, everybody was talking about that. Well, he's okay. But we look up, and it's four to, or three to nothing at that time, and the bases are loaded. And then all of a sudden, LC's on the mound, phone rings. It's Dallas Green. Another phone call from Dallas Green. And he says, get Sauchet and Knowles up. So we ran to the I, I got there very quick, grabbed the ball and threw about two pitches. Sauchet threw about two pitches. Phone rang. says, either one of them ready. I said, Iris, I'm ready. Sauce goes, you ain't ready. I said, yes, I am. So they called me in the game. Bases loaded, and, and there's two outs, and we're down four to nothing, and I'm not ready. I go into the game, and I go, ball one, ball two, ball three. And Willie Wilson is hitting again for the second time in the inning. And I went 3-0 and on him, and then I thought to myself, boy, I ain't going to be out here very long. And that Goodyear blimp's up there, and I know all my buddies are watching now. Now they all know Dickie Knowles pitching the World Series. Then I threw a strike. Then I threw a ball, but thank God Willie swung at it, hit a ground ball to first. Rose picked it up, threw it to me. I got out of the inning. I went back to the dugout and said, great, I pitched in a World Series game. Uh, if he takes me out now, I can always say I pitched in a World Series game. So I go out for the next inning, and Willie Mays Aikens has hit a home run in the first inning for those who don't remember. Then he hit one off of me, and he hit it so far. I was not one of those pitchers. Now, if you know anything about my career, I'd hit you in a minute. I mean, I don't know why I was that way, but I'd hit you in a minute. I mean, everybody knew that about me. So Willie Mays Aikens hit that ball 900 feet, and I'm watching it. But when you hit a home run off me, if you hit it a long way, I wasn't going to hit you. I'd turn around and watch it too because I always wish I could hit one that far. And he didn't run. And I hear Pete Rose going, Willie, you better run. Now, it's loud. Kansas City was loud. And I threw the pitch, and he hit it, and I'm watching it, and I go, that's going to leave the stadium. And it hit the back of the wall about two feet from leaving the stadium. So then when it hit the ground and turned around, I look up, and Willie's still standing there like this, admiring it. And it was his fourth home run of the series, which at the time tied a record. So when he hit it, and I'm sitting there, and I hear Pete Rose, the greatest motivator on the baseball to ever play with, one of the greatest teammates ever played with was Pete Rose. I wish he'd have became a Christian. He would have turned the whole world around the way he is. Rose picked it up, and he started walking towards him. He goes, Willie, you better run. Well, when you're on a field with Pete Rose that misses nothing, and you hear him say something, you got to do something. So I turned around and said, hey, Willie, you need to run, because if you don't run, I'm going to hit you in the head. And he started to jog. 
and he took all day to get around the bases. And when he got to home plate, they're all high-fiving, they're kissing. You think, you, do you see the way we celebrate home runs today? You didn't do that back then, but they were doing it. They were high-fiving, and Rose was mad at them and going, and, and so now I'm pitching good. Now I'm really feeling good about myself. I'm striking out guys. I go through the second. I go through the third. And we get to the fourth inning, and I said to myself when I went on the bench, I said, I got to hit somebody. I know that. I know how Dallas Green is. So I'm sitting down on the bench because they did a lot of things, and I don't have time to explain it, but things like hitting a ground ball, really hustle baseball, and showing us up like a ground ball to Bake McBride. He picked it up to throw it, and McCray kept going and slid in on Manny's glove at second base. And pop-up slide, they call it. And he's sitting there, and uh, he won't get off of Manny's glove. And Manny's, like, trying to pull his hand away. And Hal McCray's just sitting there looking at him, intimidating things. So now I'm, I'm sitting on the bench, and Tug McGraw got up, and Marty Bicefram sitting right beside him. And Tug McGraw goes, hey, you going to knock somebody down? And I said, I will. And he goes, well, you got to show me. I'm from Missouri. I said, cute, Tug. That's all right. I just, you know, give me time. You know, we, we talk like that on the bench. So the fourth inning comes, and I run out there, and I said, Willie Mays Akins is hitting after George Brett. So I'm pitching to George Brett, and I threw a fastball right by him, strike one. I threw another fastball, and there were some nuns sitting down the left field line. If you watch the video over again, you'll see he almost took their head off, line drive right at him, swung late. So I knew I had a good fastball. So I'm sitting there on the mound, and I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to get the guy on deck, Willie Mays Akins. But Dallas Green had been in my life for a long time, drafted me. And if you read his book, he says he drafted him, assigned him, and then all this other stuff, traded him, traded him for himself too. And um, so I'm sitting there throwing, if I don't do something now, Dallas Green always preached, when you get a guy 0-2, don't wait. So I said, I'm just going to go right at him. I head hunted. I'm not proud of that, but I threw it right at his head. And if you've seen the pitch on the Internet, I see it sometimes, and it flips. He flips and hits the ground. But that was the only time I've ever been in a Major League Baseball stadium and it went totally silent. For one second, it went totally silent. Then he erupted in booze. And then he hit the ground and got back up, and I struck him out on the next pitch. And then uh, Willie Mays Aikens came up next, and I struck him out. And I struck out the next hitter, and then I went in, and Dallas took me out of the game. But that pitch, some people say changed the World Series. That didn't change the World Series. What changed the World Series was our players. But I, if I wouldn't have thrown that pitch, nobody would have ever known I threw. And by the way, there's another thing somebody asked me about this morning. I was traded for myself. So that tells you what kind of player I was. And Dallas Green did that too. But that's a little bit about my career. And, um, but I want to go back a little bit. Uh, anybody from the South in here? Nobody from the South? Oh, okay, good. Then, you know. Well, I grew up in Charlotte, North Carolina. And what I'm going to share with you this morning is a little bit about my testimony. We're all Christians in here, so... Um, you know, I think today we're living in a, uh, tough times. We're living in times where, I, especially, I could really start a good argument here. You know, we could start a war with politics today. We could talk about politics. I have a friend of mine that's, um, I hope he's not dying, but he's got cancer. They took his uh, uh, kidney out, and he's really struggling. He was a big, strong man. So we go walking in the evenings. So we're walking, and one, one, one evening we're walking, and he's, his buddy came over, and his buddy's a lawyer. So we got to talk in politics, 
and it's 11 o'clock at night. Joe has trouble in the mornings. He has trouble when there's beautiful weather outside. It's just the time of the day. In the evenings, he feels pretty good. This one evening, we went to walk with him, and it was late. So we're walking down the street, and uh, his attorney friend starts talking about one side. I'm talking about the other side. And, I, and, and Joe's sitting there listening like, y'all don't start this. And then there's another third guy with us, and he's on my side. So we're talking about who's going to be president, who's not. I don't know who started the conversation, but I guarantee you, the NRA would have loved us. If we'd have had guns, we'd have started shooting at each other. It got heated. So politics is something that really, in America today, you really can't talk about. But there's another thing going on in America today, and I believe it's, it, it's men like us. You know, I have a family. If I was going to introduce myself today to you, I'd introduce myself as the most despicable person that I know because I know what's in this Bible. I don't always get to follow it, but I try hard. And I say that because the Lord said, for all have sinned. And come short of the glory of God. And, and when I didn't really understand scripture when I was growing up. But I will tell you this. I had a mother. Not a father. I had a mother. I don't really know who my father is to this day. But I had a mother that tried to do everything in my life. And I had a mother that did one thing great for me. I had a mother that took this Bible and beat me over the head with it. And uh, my mother was my hero. She wasn't the greatest woman in the world. She was a very simple woman. But my mother was a person that had some tragedy in her life growing up. Drugs and alcohol have been in my life forever. You know, I got my job with the Phillies because of my drug and alcohol past. I'm in recovery. I've been sober since April 9th of 1983. And I got my job because of that. You know, I used to have dreams all the time that someday I'm going to go, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to relapse and drink in my dream. And I'm going to, there's a black police car pulls up behind me and I've lost my job because my job kind of really is because of the recovering background that I had. That's how I got the employee assistant job. There's no secret to that. That's how I got it. But when I was a kid, drugs and alcohol in my home were prevalent. It was always around. It's something you grew up watching. But I also grew up as a kid that, you know, that really was searching for a father figure. At least I didn't know that, but I look back on it now, and I know I was. And I had this mother. Darce Jean Starbush was my mother's name. And listen, i got to share something with you. I'm glad I got Dickie Ray Knowles. Sometimes, so one thing I didn't ask my mother when I was growing up was, why did you name me Dickie? I never asked her that. I wish I would have. But my cousin was Dale Robinson Tarbush. Anybody remember him? Cowboy. John Wayne Tarbush and Ricky Nelson Tarbush. I'm glad I got Dickie Ray Knowles after that. But as I was growing up, my mother was trying to mold a better way for me because of the tragedy that happened in my mother's life. My mother got to watch one brother shoot another brother. There were some other things about my birth that was, that was not right. Nobody ever, to this day, I can ask people, I, can, I got one living adult other than my sisters and brothers living and I can ask my aunt Sylvia and I can show you that and goes Sylvia uh, what was it about my birth that was so secret she'll go well I don't you know, she won't talk about it nobody would talk about it I have since learned what happened and there is not total truth to what happened so I'll leave it out but I can tell you that it was a trauma for my mother but my mother and I believe everybody in here we got a we got a bunch of men in here we got a bunch of strong men in here, but we all got share something. We all want to be loved. We all want to be capable, and we all want to belong. I used that for the first time on third graders. I was thinking of, I was doing drug and alcohol education one day in the school. I said, how can I reach these third graders? I, I don't want to talk to them and say, don't do drugs. So I said, hey, how many of you kids in here can sing? And all of them raised their hand. I said, well, come on up and sing the national anthem. They almost stampeded me. And I went, wait, 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 sit down. 
National anthem. That's what I said. You know how to sing that? And I said, how many of you can dance? And I was going to put some music on, and they were all, I can dance, I can dance. Almost Some of them got on tables. And I said, how many of you can draw a chicken, I mean a choo-choo train going down a railroad track at 100 miles an hour with a chicken on the top chasing a dog, or a dog on the top chasing a chicken? I forget what I said. They all said, I can. And what they were saying was, and that's why I used it, they want to belong, be capable, and be loved. We all want to do that. Well, my mother was always looking for love. My mother was looking for love her whole life. So when she had me, she found it because she had someone to take care of. And when I was born, my mother used to always sing to me all the time. She'd sing, K, Sarah, Sarah. And I'm writing a book. I'm 62 years old. I may not get this book written. Maybe the Lord let me write in heaven because I'm not getting there. But I have already come up with the title of the book. I've spoke it all over the country. And it's called All Alone because that's the, word, that's the word that I use a lot when it came to me and my mother when I was growing up. It was always me and her. She'd sit on the back doorsteps and, you know, take the bobby pins, church bells ring, and I love Sunday mornings, and pick my ears with bobby pins. And she would sing to me, K Sarah, Sarah. She always, always to sing. She made up her own songs, by the way. Jesus loves me. Tis I know. That wasn't the way she sung it. But she was always saying, Jesus loves me. If you come and look at the front of my Bible, it's on all my Bibles every year. Jesus loves me because that's what my mother said all the time. My mother heard Billy Graham preach as a young person. And Billy Graham in Charlotte, North Carolina, preaches more there than anywhere else because at least on 369 we used to get him. And back when I was growing up, you had Channel 3, Channel 3, Channel 6, Channel 9, and that was all you had. And so Billy Graham would always come on. And Billy Graham would not just come on on Sunday mornings and Sunday nights. He came on through the week. But my mother heard him use the Word of God and heard him say, God knew you before you were even in the womb. So when my mother was pregnant with me, there were some people that wanted her to have an abortion. If you think about 1956, abortions were rough. So my mother said, no, 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 I'm having this child. That's what the Lord wants me to do because I heard Billy Graham say that. So we know how powerful the Word of God is, even for the unsaved, if you think about it, because I don't think at that time my mother was saved. So my mother has me, and I became my mother's life. So everywhere we'd walk together. And I know there were times that I can even think back that I probably was in my real dad's presence because my mother, I remember walking to people's house, and I remember getting, her getting money and her being upset and us leaving. But I don't, I've had nobody to tell me that, but I do recall that. But I also know my mother ran into some tough times. My mother ran into some very tough times. But my mother was trying to still always look for a father figure for me. And my mother was always talking about certain men. Billy Graham, she beat me over the head with, told me how great he was. I'd have to come in and watch him. Martin Luther King was speaking one day. She brought me in and said, you need to watch this man. He's a man of character and a man of integrity, a man of intellect. And I would hear that about Billy Graham too. But she'd always end with Billy Graham, said a man of God. And so my mother brought me in, <clears throat> and I remember watching Martin Luther King, and I didn't mind that because he got about five minutes and I'd be out playing. I hated it when Billy Graham spoke because I had to come in and take my guns off and sit there, you know, my little cowboy guns and watch TV for like 45 minutes. And then she'd let me go. She would never let me go back out until he was completely done. And so I didn't know why. I didn't know why. But my mother later on told me, that during her life, that the only thing she had to hold on to was God's love, and she didn't even know him. So this, this word can be very powerful, even for the unsaved. But my mother knew that Billy Graham was telling the truth. My mother's favorite scripture verse was John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. So my mother knew that scripture verse. 
That was her favorite scripture verse. And then so as I started to grow into this family, I thought my mother was the greatest human being in the world. My mother made me feel good. And then all of a sudden something happened in my life. Life was about to change for me. My mother was going to introduce me to a new dad. She had married Ken Knowles. I thought Ken Knowles was my dad. I have his name. And Ken Knowles was a person my mother fell in love with. And I didn't know I was two years old when she married him. So when as I was growing up, I thought Ken Knowles was my father. But anytime you have the truth somewhere, you hear the whispers. So I was hearing the whispers that he's not my dad. And I didn't like it. But then now my mother took off. She, she said, Dickie, we're going to the grocery store. And we ended up in Philadelphia in the third grade. Lived on B and Allegheny Street. So we took off to Philadelphia, and I was angry at my mother, like, Mom, why are we going up here? And she introduces me to my one negative thing about my mother. My mother was a great lady. My mother was a simple woman, but she didn't believe in divorces. But she got married several times. I don't know how she did it to this day. And she married Donald Norkett. So we're in Philadelphia. I hated Philadelphia. I would go to school, and kids would ask me, can you talk for us? And I'd say, what y'all want me to say? And they said, that's good enough. And then I got where I realized we were in poverty. If I wanted a pretzel, I'd say, no, nah, I ain't talking for you. And they'd say, we'll give you a nickel. You get a pretzel for a nickel. I'd say, all right, what y'all want me to say? And they'd laugh. Because I, re- I called my brother the other night, and I laughed. I said, Donald, what are you doing? He said, Dickie, them Phillies are pretty good this year, aren't they? And I go, did I used to talk like that? And he said, Dickie, if you don't slow down the way you talk, and boy, you're going to have a heart attack. I said, Donald, if you don't speed up, I'm going to get fired. I got to get to work. But... It's kind of funny the way, you know, that we used to talk. So I'm, I'm up in Philadelphia. I'm having a miserable time, snowing all over the place. It's Christmas time. If you go back and look, when I was in third grade up here, I forget the year now, we had a big snowstorm on Christmas. I used to think it snows in Philadelphia all the time. But we're walking down the street, my mother's singing, K Sarah, Sarah, and she's showing us stuff in Macy's in the window. I'm saying, Mom, it's Christmas time. What are we getting? Those are great gifts. She goes, oh, you're getting nothing. And I go, wait, time out. What'd you say? We get nothing, and she'd make it okay. One of the greatest Christmases I ever had in my life, we got nothing. Salvation Army came in and fed us. But it was a wonderful Christmas because sometimes, somehow, some way, my mother made it special and okay. She made it okay. But I remember somewhere along the line, Salvation Army felt bad for us, and they brought my sister a bike. Oh, I was happy for her. And I'm sitting there going, what about me? I'm over here, and they gave me two turtlenecks. They were good-looking, too. And I remember the guy from the Salvation Army telling my mother, hey, don't tell him that those are girls. I was like, oh, man, I ain't wearing those. He goes, they look the same. They just zip up. They just fit a little different. I said, I ain't wearing those things. My mother asked me to wear them to school. I was like, Mom, those are girls. No, they're not. Yeah, they are. I heard the guy tell you that. You know, I, to this day, I still love the Salvation Army. A few years back, we had a Christmas time. Salvation Army asked me to come down on Broad Street. Not Broad Street, Market Street, where they're big... Uh, uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield building is, and they were ringing the bell, and they said, could you get a Phillies player to come out here? So they called the Phillies, and they got me. And they said, can you wear your uniform? I was like, seriously? I said, okay, I'll wear my uniform. I wore my uniform out there, and for three years, I raised more money on that place for the Salvation Army than anybody did. They'd come by and guys say, hey, man, you were the Phillies? Yeah, Dickie Knowles. Well, I never heard of you, but I was with the Phillies. Hey, yeah, Dickie Knowles, come by. And they would, and, and guys would come by, and I'd say, hey, man, where'd you get them shoes at? Those are nice shoes. They'd go, thank you. And I said, you put a dollar in here? With shoes like that, dude, you ought to have put a little more money in there. I'd guilt them to throw in it. I had one guy to put 80 bucks in one day, and I said, if you got 80 bucks to put in here and you're quitting now, another 20, dude. Come on, make it 100. So I was doing the Salvation Army pretty good until finally one day, 
Phillies called me in and said, hey, you've been good to Salvation Army, but we don't want you out there no more, man. You're soliciting too much money for these guys, and people are calling in. But that's okay. I love the Salvation Army. From that year, my mother got, a, got us a bike. I got a couple turtleneck shorts, 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 shirts. And I learned to wear those things after a while when you didn't have nothing else. When that year was over, my mother decided to go back to North Carolina. Boy, was I happy. We went back to North Carolina. I'm going to get Ken Knowles back in my life. I'm going back. Mom, you're going back with Dad, right? You're going back with... No, don't work that way. My mother became a weekend mother for the rest of my life at that moment. Because I lived with my grandmother, who's a Bible-believing, born-again Christian, one of the greatest things ever happened to me. She's in the front of my Bible with, with a few other people in my life and, and with Johnny Oates. So my, my, my mother decides to live up the street from us. And my sister and myself are living with Ken Knowles and my grandmother, and I grew up that way. And my mother was a weekend mom, and I loved her dearly. But I didn't realize I got a little angry at her because, you know, she kind of gave me away. But I never looked at it that way, to be honest with you. I looked at it like mom's right around the corner. If I want to go see my mother, I just go over there. But there was another reason I didn't want to go over and see my mom, because Donald Norkett was a little rough, and he beat her. Sometimes I wondered if she didn't beat him. I look just like my mom, and she's about my size, a little bit shorter. But a lot of times I felt like my mother was starting a lot of the fights. And it's not a very good thing to see when you go see that kind of violence. We call it domestic violence today. Back in them days, everybody called it, look the other way. I don't want to see that, so we'll just leave. So that was kind of like the life my mother was living, and I loved my mother. When I got to be about 14 years of age, I finally whooped up on Donald Norcott one day, and that wasn't very pleasant either because I got to whoop up, not him. But Donald Norcott was a guy that loved his alcohol, and he's dead today. And Ken Knowles was a guy that loved his alcohol. And my mother grew up in a place that loved their alcohol. So the progression was continuing. And I didn't think it was anything wrong with it. I mean, I didn't think that, you know, that's what I grew up in. That's what I seen a lot. And then one day, I, start, I found baseball. I found baseball in the weirdest way. Billy Hoover was a great friend of mine. He got me playing baseball. He was a young guy, and, and I was in the fifth grade. He asked me to play Little League Baseball. I said, Billy, I don't know how to play baseball. But he got me playing. I went out on the field. I wasn't very good. It took me eight games to get to first base, but I loved the feeling of putting that uniform on. I wore mine like Ron Swoboda for the New York Mets, socks up. Nobody wore them that way back then. And I loved the game. I wasn't very good at it. But then I got another role model in my life. Mr. Phillips was my coach, and he seen talent in me. And he would put me down at third base and hit me ground balls because when I first started playing, I couldn't catch a ground ball. I couldn't catch a fly ball. I could throw, though. And I couldn't hit. So there's not much left in the game other than throwing. I should have known I was going to be a pitcher then. But he seen talent in me. So he would take me to third base and hit me ground balls. Take me to shortstop, hit me ground balls. Take me to second base, hit me ground balls. Take me to first. Take me to the outfield. He was doing all the positions, teaching me all of them. One of the greatest things that ever happened to me. I was a young little leaguer. Wasn't very good. Eight games it took me to get to first base. And this guy's teaching me every part of the trade. Then I started to fall in love with the game. That's when I fell in love with Amazing Mets because that was the time frame of when I looked up and I loved Tug McGraw. I don't know why I picked out Tug McGraw, but I liked Tug McGraw. I liked Nolan Ryan on that team too, and I liked Tom Seaver. I even copied Tom Seaver. And so I'm watching those guys, and I want to be like them. That's the time of my life I decided. I was 10 years old. I said I want to be a Major League Baseball player. I put all of my effort in that. Nobody in my family ever came to see me play because we just didn't do that back then. Are you playing baseball? Yeah, well, good. 
But I remember one particular moment. I came home and I told my mother. I went over to her house. Mom said, you playing ball? I said, yes. Yeah, I am, Mom. I'm playing baseball. Are you? That's great. You're the greatest. I go, Mom, I'm not very good. She goes, no, you're the greatest. My mother was one of these people that would tell you you're the best at everything no matter what. My mother was a very special person, I'm telling you. And I said, Mom, I can't hit the ball. She goes, well, we'll settle that. Back in them days, everywhere you go to Eckerd's for everything, hot dogs and everything you buy. So we went to Eckerd's, and there was one of those. They didn't have wiffle ball bats back then. They had those big bats. Remember those big old, you can't miss with that, big old gigantic bats. Call them bam-bam bats. And the ball was about that big too, so she bought one plastic. She goes, I'm going to teach you to hit. We went home and she started to throw it and I'm swinging and missing. She threw it and I'm swinging and missing. She threw it and I'm swinging and missing. She threw it and threw it. I said, mom, I told you I can't hit it. And I know in her mind, she's going, how are you playing ball? You can't hit this big old thing. Finally, she found my bat and threw one and I hit it and it boom, went flying out there. And she goes, see, you're the greatest. That was my mom. She goes, we're done. Let's go have a recent cup and Pepsi. I was like, mom, I only hit one. She goes, yeah, but you hit it farther than everybody. You're the greatest. Anybody seen that uh, the little video, Kenny Rogers, Yes, I Am the Greatest? If you hadn't, go home today and look it up on the video. It's a special little video. It's about five minutes long. It's called, it's called Yes, I Am the Greatest. That's my mom. In the video, the little boy comes on, and Kenny Rogers is singing, Yes, I Am the Greatest. Yes, I And then the little boy, and it, he's talking it. Little boy throws up the ball. Ball comes down, swings the bat with all of his might, hits the ground, and that's strike one. And then in the video, the little boy throws up the ball, and then it goes to Babe Ruth. Shows Babe Ruth hitting. Shows Mark McGuire hitting. And it shows Sammy Sosa hitting. It was that era, I think, when he made the video. And then the ball comes down. The little boy swings the bat with all of his might. And the ball hits the ground, and that's strike two. They had showed a little minor league stadium with the fans filling up. Now the little boy throws up the ball. Ball goes up. Ball comes down. Swings the bat with all of his might and hits the ground. And all the fans fade away. And he goes, and that's strike three. I'm thinking, whoa, how's that a positive video the first time I seen it? And he strings, you know, Kenny Rogers is stringing away. And the boy just struck out. And he goes, yes, I am the greatest. And I'm going, what is this video about? And then all of a sudden, the little boy's mother calls him home. The little boy picks up his ball, picks up his bat. He's heading home. And then Kenny Rogers is singing, yes, I am the greatest. And then he says, and even I didn't know I could pitch like that. If you didn't get that, you better say <laughs> But anyway, I thought, that's my mom. She found something positive in everything. And I remember that video. I was going, that was my mother telling me. That's all she said. Yes, you are the greatest. You are the best. I go, Mom, I hit one ball, but you're the best. Shortly after that, I started to play Little League Baseball. I got into Pony League Baseball. I got into Legion Baseball. I got into everybody in North Carolina just about knowing who I was. Everybody, everybody said, yeah, he's a good football player. I only played football one year. Everybody said, yeah, he's a pretty good athlete. He's a great baseball player. That's what I used to get all the time. He's a very good baseball player. And I was thinking, man, <clears throat> this is all I want to do is play baseball. I had not really done much with the Word of God. I wasn't spending that much time with my mother. When I would go over, my mother would ask me a lot of things. How are you doing? Are you reading the Bible? I go, Mom, I, I don't know. I, I don't even know anything about the Bible. Are you watching Billy Graham? Then my grandmother started to share scripture verses with me, but it's just it's going over my head. And then one day this big blue bus pulls up. Thank God for church ministry. This big blue bus pulls up. Northside Baptist Church, if you ever go to Northside Baptist Church, I challenge you to do one thing. Walk in Northside Baptist Church, take a look at the gigantic picture of a pastor that used to preach there. His name's Pastor Hudson, and he looks just like Babe Ruth. Could have been Babe Ruth's brother. 
and this church bus comes by my house, and I'm outside throwing a ball against the wall, at that point, I develop a reputation of being a great baseball player. I'd also developed a reputation of being a wild person, a person with a bad attitude. If you'd have talked to me during that time of my life, I'd have said, attitude? I don't have a bad attitude. I'm a, I, I was told I was a kid from the other side of railroad tracks. I, it took me till I was 20 years old to realize what do they mean by the other side of railroad tracks. And so this bus pulls up, Pastor, um, I mean, uh, the bus driver's name was Jim Wilson. He's in a blue bus, Northside Baptist Church. I'd seen the bus written on it. And he pulls up and he says, hey, are you Dickie Knowles? I said, yes, sir, I'm Dickie Knowles. He goes, uh, I said, how'd you know my name? He goes, I hear you're a pretty good ball player. I said, thank you. And I'm throwing a ball against the wall. That day I was probably Tom Seaver striking out Hank Aaron. Who knows? It's just a wall apartment I lived in. And he goes, would you like to go to church? And I go, nah, thanks, that's okay. He goes, well, do you believe in God? I said, everybody believes in God. How many times you hear that? Everybody believes in God. And he said, well, who's God to you? I said, there's only one God. How do you know? My mother told me. Oh, that's a smart mom. My grandmother told me too. Have you ever been to church? I said, I've been to church plenty of times. My grandfather would always take us to church. Give us all a dollar. We have to put it in the, you know, if we didn't give that dollar, some of us try to keep it, he'd, he'd smack you. My grandfather would take us to church. We ran a pool hall, go to church on Sunday mornings, and Sunday night we're in his pool hall because we used to help him out as little as I was. Sometimes we had to get him out of jail after Sunday night. He started church on Sunday morning. Sometimes we're getting him out of jail. Yeah, I went to church. What would you learn in church? You must have learned a little bit about God. I said, God loves everybody. He said, really? I said, yeah, Jesus loves me. He goes, oh, you know about Jesus? I go, yeah. And he goes, well, come to church. I said, no, I don't need church. He said, well, we got baseball at church. I said, you do? We're at that time of the year where there's not much baseball. You know, you're talking March. You know, I mean, when you're in high school, there's baseball. But you're talking March. There's no baseball yet. Y'all started up here a little early. We started baseball down there a little later. We, we wait till the weather turns warm. We're smarter than you on that part. But now up here in March, you do have baseball. So I'm looking at him and goes, baseball? There's no baseball. He goes, yeah, we're playing baseball. I said, well, I'll go to church. He said, I'll pick you up. I said, okay. Where are you going to pick me up at? Right here. I said, all right. I got ready, went in. My grandmother said, you going to church? I said, yes, ma'am. She said, well, you're looking good. She'd comb my hair because my hair was all over the place. I got on that church bus, and I took off to Northside Baptist Church. Of course, I went up in the upper deck. There was this girl on the bus, and I really liked this girl a lot. And back then, they had the fondues. I don't know what they call them, but they, they were really starched out hair. So I took the church bulletin because I'm Dickie Knowles. I'm not going to sit around and not do nothing. I couldn't sit still for, Carl, I couldn't sit still for five minutes. And I'm sitting there taking that church bulletin. I got me a straw. I don't know where it came from. And I'm making spitballs, and <clears throat> I'm putting them in the back of her hair, and they're sticking too, man, and all the kids are laughing. Then they all quit laughing. I couldn't get anybody to laugh anymore. And the preacher came up. And the preacher came up and said, we're going to do something on John 3.16 today. And I'm going, I don't know what John 3.16 is. And I don't know if it was for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life that hit me. But I did digest that real quickly. And as I was looking at that, I said, wow. I'd never heard that scripture verse before. And I'd heard Billy Graham. You'd think I'd heard it. And I'm sure I heard it many times. But this time, God, you know, in the South, a lot of times in Baptist churches, and I'm the Baptist, we say we lead people to the Lord. And believe me, don't let me offend you with his comment. God leads people to the Lord. And God was leading me to the Lord that day, using people to bring me in. And he's using that pastor to reach my heart.
And that pastor started to speak. When he, when he started to quote Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, hit me like a ton of bricks. I couldn't digest those words. They were just, God was putting them in my heart. For by grace are you saved. I didn't know what the word grace meant. I had no idea what the word grace meant. I also know that I didn't know what the word having faith meant. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, lest least any man should boast. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, what does that mean? I knew what it meant to me. It meant that, hey, the Lord loves me no matter what. His grace is sufficient for me. That meant that this, this is something that I've never heard before. I'm sure somewhere I heard it, but God was putting it in my heart that day. And then I went down, and when I went down, I found myself walking up to the pastor. And I, and I remember walking up there. And he didn't have to say, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, because I knew I was a sinner. And he didn't have to say, for the wages of sinners, death. And I just went down there because of the love of God was in my heart. I realized at that moment, for some reason, God was working on me, and I wanted to be saved. No one told me anything about death that day. No one told me. I, I just heard those verses. He was doing something on John. His whole message was on John 3.16. And I went down there, and there was so many people down there that day that I was, didn't recognize anyone down there, didn't know anyone down there, didn't care, didn't, know if the whole, didn't care if the whole school was looking at me, that I was wanted this. I wanted the Lord in my life. I wanted to know how. I got down on my hands and knees, and, yeah, I was crying. You know, when I'm in church, and I hope every man in here feels this way, when someone comes to the Lord, if you don't cry, something's wrong with you. I cry inside. Sometimes I cry outside. The angels are crying. They're singing. They're not crying. A, they're crying a good cry, but they're singing. The Bible tells us the angels are singing when someone gets saved. When someone gets saved at church, sometimes I see people, they're going, that's nice, and they walk right out. That's, that's a miracle. Your life has just been changed. The greatest miracle of all time, God came and died for our sins. He had to be born first. That's another miracle. And so I'm sitting there, and Pastor Hudson comes over to me. Of all people, Pastor Hudson, Babe Ruth. I looked up, and I went, whoa, the guy looks like Babe Ruth. And he sat down and led me to the Lord. And I sat there, and I left that church, and I was on fire. I went to church Sunday morning. I got baptized Sunday night. I was at church on Wednesday, and my life was starting to change. In one week, my life had never been better than this. And I was going back to that home, and I was trying to preach in that home. Because what, what did Jesus leave us with? Jesus told us to do what? Huh? To be disciples of the Word, to share the Word, to tell everyone. Go into, go into all the world and preach the Word. The Bible tells us that this is the Word. That Jesus is the Word. The Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. So I said, I know all that, so I'm going to go share it. And I'd been a little bit of a rough child in my life. And just to tell you a little bit about my life, I'd, I'd been in and out of trouble a few times, mostly for fighting. I was, I was in a home that when I grew up, and one day my grandmother told me that Ken Knowles wasn't my dad, I ran around the corner and started to cry. And it was the first time when I realized that I really cried a good cry because the other time I cried, my one into my dad, I got my nose busted. I'm in my first fight in school, and the guy looks at me. We're playing football on a field, and a bigger than me, and he says, uh, he tackled me hard. I got up. I pushed him. He pushed me. He said, you want to fight? I said, yes, I do, and he hit me in the nose. I said, I quit. Nose is all blooded. I'm smart. I quit. You beat me. Time out. I'm going home. I went home, and I went in my house, came in, nose is blooded, crying, and my dad said, what's wrong with you? I said, I got in a fight. He goes, did you win? I go, no. And he goes, well, get out of here. Don't come back until you win. I learned to lie that day. I walked around a corner, took a little time, came back in, cleaned my nose up, 
Did you get him? Yes, I got him. Did you win? Yes, I did. Sit down here then. And that was kind of the environment that I was living in. So now I'm sitting here crying because my grandmother told me that I wasn't my dad. And I cried then, but I don't remember crying other than silently in my sleep sometimes. And now I'm in a church and I'm crying in front of everybody because I want to, I want to cry because of the unbelievable, unconditional love of a God that loves us so much that he's willing to come in our life and send his son to die for our sins. So I got saved that day, got baptized that night. Now I want to go out into the world and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. So they gave me a little, a little uh, uh, New Testament. Wow, I can't wait to witness. That's what the Lord left us with, to be a witness in all places. I knocked on my first door. I go in there, and there he is. Opens up the door, big old John up the street. Hey, Diggy, what are you doing, boy? I said, John, if you were to die today, do you know where you'd be? He goes, what? I said, if you were to die today, do you know where you'd be? He goes, no. And I said, well, you'd be in hell. Then let me tell you how to get to heaven. Boom, the door shut right in my face. I said, that didn't work. So I go down the road a little bit more. I knocked on the door, and, 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 and Miss, uh, I'm going to call her Miss Jones. I can't think of her name. She opens up the door, and she goes, Dickie, what are you doing? I said, hey, uh, uh, if you were to die today, do you know where you'd be? And she goes, what? No, I really don't. What are you talking about? And I said, well, if you don't, I got to come in because you'd be in hell. Let me tell you how to get to heaven. Her door shut. I was like, wow, this ain't working. So I was not very good at it. I need to figure this out. And my life started to change after that. And as my life started to change after that, one thing for certain, I was, a, I was definitely in a better place. I knew I had love, and I had love for others. That anger that I had about my mother for the first time in my life became prevalent. I knew that I was angry at my mother. I started to disciple my mother. I'm a young Christian, but I'm telling my mother, Mother, remember when you used to tell me about the Word? Let me tell you what I'm learning. Everything that I learned in church, I ran home to tell my mother, and that was only on the weekends. <clears throat> but I'm playing ball now. I'm playing ball all over the place. I'd started drinking. My first drink of alcohol came with my dad, Ken Knowles. It came with my grandmother. He's out playing horseshoes, and it came with him out there playing horseshoes with a bunch of other men. And I'm in the house, and my grandmother said, why don't you go out and play horseshoes with your dad? I was going, I don't want to do that. So she did it right in front of me, but I didn't, she didn't think I'd seen her. She went out, and she said, Ken, why don't you show that boy some love? He loves you to death. Do something with him. Bring him out here to play horseshoes. And my dad used to make me call him Pop. Everybody called him Pop. Couldn't call him Dad. My real name is Dickie, not Dick. So he would, when he would call me Dick, I would remind him and say, okay, Dad. And then he would say, call me Pop. I'd say, well, call me Dickie. And so that's how we kind of communicated that. But this particular day, he said, hey, Dick, go get us a beer. I said, okay. He's got all of his friends out there. I'm not going to correct him. I ran up. I got the slits, big old slits, put the salt on it the way he wanted it, brought it out, gave it to him. He said, Dick, go get us another beer. I said, okay. He said, us. I said, I never tasted beer before, so I'm going to try it. So I'm bringing a beer out to him, took a sip of it. He didn't say nothing. After about four more trips to the fridge and after about eight more sips or maybe ten and probably more than that, I was feeling good. I never had that feeling before. I was feeling real good. I was feeling great, to be honest with you, and no one cared. And I'm having great fellowship with my dad. That was my first encounter with alcohol. So I started to drink alcohol. But when I went to church, I knew that was wrong. I quit doing it. And then one day someone told me, it's weird how the, you know, we forget the devil knows that scripture better than us. We forget who he is. We forget all about who Satan is. So one day I'm sitting there talking and I'm trying to talk about the Bible. And, you know, I'm 
grown up now, and I'm throwing fastballs at 90 miles an hour, and I'm, I'm pitching and throwing shutouts, and everywhere I go, people are knocking on my door, want me to play baseball. I didn't have to choose a team. They chose me. I'm playing for, like, everybody in North Carolina. Everybody wanted me to play for them. <clears throat> so here, here we are, and I'm playing baseball, and a guy comes up to me, one of my teammates, and says, you're not going to go drink no more? You don't drink no more? I go, no. I'm a Christian. He goes, you ever see Jesus' first miracle? And I was like, yeah, I know what it was. What was it? He turned water to wine. Well, what do you think? That's the drink, that's the drink that gladdens the heart. It's what the Bible says. You, you know, and, and then he starts with presidents. He said, Benjamin Franklin drank beer. No, he didn't. Yeah, he did. And he was a Christian. George Washington drank beer, and he was a Christian. So I started to drink beer again. I thought, huh, okay, I've been a little mixed up in this whole thing. But there was a part of me that started to fall away even before I got to that point. The falling away came because I was popular. The falling away became because I wanted to be with all my buddies. The falling away came because all those friends that I shunned because I was going to church and I wanted a different life and I wanted to honor the Lord. And, you know, I got to say something. And I don't know if you have a discipleship program here, but I believe that I just believe in my heart that when we disciple people, they do better. And they, they got something better to fall back on. It says, that word, have I hid my heart that I might not sin against thee? Some people think they know the word, but they don't. I didn't know the word. And I started to drink, and I started to backslide little by little. It don't happen overnight. It took me about a year. Then I was missing church on Sunday mornings. Then I was missing church on Wednesday nights. But I'd go Sunday night. That was good enough as long as I go Sunday night. Then I was missing church on Sunday night. And then I was having girls. Oh, God, what guy don't want girls? And now all of a sudden, it's amazing when you get this new notoriety of being a good athlete. Everybody likes you. Your teachers even let you get away with murder. And then I get drafted. Philadelphia Phillies draft me. I go up to sign my first professional contract. Dallas Green made that call, but he put one other thing in that call. We don't want that attitude that you're... I said, what attitude, Dallas? Because I'd been in jail already. I'd gotten arrested for fighting. And I, I mean, I was only spent, you know, like a couple hours in jail. But when you're a high school kid, that, that travels, that news travels fast. I crossed my heart. I hope to die. I'll be a great baseball player. I'm not going to get in trouble. 1975, I got arrested. 1976, I got arrested. 1977, I got arrested. 1978, I got arrested. 1979, I got arrested. And then I got called up to the big leagues on July the 4th of 1979. Each year I got arrested, it was not really, I didn't run nobody over or shoot nobody. Nobody ever brought me in and said, you got an alcohol problem. I had ran from this word so fast, and I didn't realize it. But I knew who God was. God allows us choice. And I, in 1975, I got arrested, but I got in a fight. I was protecting my teammate in a bar. 1976, I pulled a fire alarm being funny in the S South Carolina. And, and, and when I pulled the fire alarm, the police officers came out and the fireman came out and said, who pulled that fire alarm? I said, it was two black guys. They ran that away. One with a pink shirt and one with an orange shirt. And we high-fived each other, me and Dennis Hawkins, a black guy from California. And then Hawk said, why they both got to be black? So I said, Mr. Police Officer, one was white, one was black. He came back and poured that flashlight out. All that fluorescent stuff was on me. I went to jail. Didn't run nobody over, shoot nobody, didn't hurt nobody. 1977, I drove a Corvette. Got to have a nice car when you're a ball player down a one-way road. Police officer pulls me over. I said, why are you picking on me for? He says, I'm picking on you. I says, I had my top down. It was raining. He says, uh, son, I ain't worrying about your car getting wet. I'm worrying about the other people. You're... I said, why? I've done nothing wrong. He said, turn around and look. I've seen 10 red lights. One, two, three. I was about the biggest shipbuilding yard in the country. 
in Peninsula, and I got arrested for DUI. Still didn't straighten up my life, 1978, because, see, I had kind of folded this thing and moved away from it, but I got, I'm going to be a Major League Baseball player, make a lot of money, have a lot of fun, and I'm going to sit on that fence Jesus was talking about. Then I'm going to come back. I'm too young to do that right now. But in my quiet time, I knew something was wrong. The Lord was ringing me out, allowing me to make decisions. 1978, I got arrested for urinating in the street in Reading, Pennsylvania, in front of a police officer. How about that? I think I had an alcohol problem. The police officer rolled his window down. He said, hey, boy, are you stupid? I said, no, I'm writing my name. He arrested me. <clears throat> 1979, it started to turn violent. I got in a fight. First night of the season up in Oklahoma City. Got in a fight with a bunch of guys in a bar. Soon as I would drink alcohol, my whole, not right away, but I could never drink two beers because I loved the feeling of two, so I wanted three. Then I wanted four to keep that feeling, and I never could put a beer down. I always would drink it. I had a problem right from the very beginning. 1979, 1980, I was in the big leagues. 79, I go to sign autographs down in Atlantic City. A girl comes up and asks me to sign a private part of her body. I'm a great Christian. So I thought it was funny because all the other guys went, yeah, go ahead. I signed it. Her boyfriend broke my nose, so I broke his jaw. Got sued for $25,000. 1980, we won a world championship. Pete Rose tells me, Pi, call me Pi, don't get drunk. I said, what do you mean, Pete? He says, the parade tomorrow that we're going to go through is going to be the greatest parade you've ever seen. You won't remember it. I don't remember any 80 parade. I was on a float in 2008. I can tell you all about that, but I don't remember 1980. 1981, the Phillies traded me to Chicago Cubs after the 1981 season. First of all, after 1980, they sent me to minor leagues trying to straighten me out. Then in 1982, they traded me to Chicago Cubs. 1982, I was a second pitcher on the club in Chicago, out on Rush Street every night, still running from the Bible, running from God, running from the Word. On April 9th of 1983, it all came tumbling down for me. See, I knew the word. The Bible says, thy word have I hid, thy word have, thy, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. I knew that. I knew it very well. But I was starting to forget. I didn't want anyone in the baseball world to know I was a Christian. Really didn't. And here's my reason. I'd gotten so far down the other side of the railroad tracks, as my grandmother used to call them, I'd become that same person you know, they say if you go back to your sin, it gets worse. If you go back to your drinking, it gets worse. Mine had gotten much worse. I, had, I was embarrassed about my mother, embarrassed about my grandmother. I just kept telling myself, and addiction works like that. I kept telling myself, I'm going to wake up tomorrow, and I'm not going to do this, and I'd do it again. You know, the Lord, everybody says the Bible has all the, all the answers in it. The answers are very simple. You know, God will, he can if we let him. Sometimes when he gives us choice, sometimes we denied. Every, it's right there in front of us. He's, he's, he's offering the way out every time. And I didn't want it. And, 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 and every time someone, it was, hey, you want to go to chapel? Mike Smith. Hey, Dick, you want to go to chapel? I go, no, that's, not, no, that's okay. The reason I didn't want to go and my heart would be bleeding is because I was afraid that one of the non-Christians would see me going there and they'd say, I ain't going in there. If Dickie Knowles is a Christian, I want nothing to do with that. That's how much that I was falling, backslidden that far. And on April 9th of 1983, I had tried, it, tried to straighten out my drinking part of my life. I'd quit drinking, and I went into a bar one last time. One last time. It's like sin. It's like men with pornography. I'm going to do it one last time. It's like people that say, hey, I'm going to do it one more time, and then I'm going to quit it. Well, I was going to do it one more time. I'd asked been quit. I was told to be, I was told 
to quit drinking, that I was going to be drug tested or alcohol tested by Dallas Green. So that spring training, I did quit. But I was going to do it one last time with a friend of mine that got released. One more time. We went in a bar, and guess who got rowdy? He did. And guess who paid for it? I did. We got in a fight. Police officer was called on the scenes, and I hit a police officer. I was sentenced to 180 days in a federal prison because when you touch a police officer in Cincinnati, it's a felony. And I was in front of the 60 minutes. I was in front of the judge, and he said, Mr. Knowles, you're not a role model. You're a parole model. And he sentenced me to 180 days in a prison. I said, wait, wait, Your Honor, time out. I'm a Major League Baseball player. I don't know any other Major League Baseball. For, for, for that fight, I don't even remember hitting the guy. I don't know if I hit him or not. Maybe he's lying. You're sending me to jail? Greatest thing that ever happened to me, I went into jail. I got out of jail on a pill, and I went into a drug and alcohol rehab. And if you're in recovery, I'm not going to be critical of this. I can do the Alcoholics Anonymous book better than anyone, but I didn't want it. I told that when I went to, when I went, I knew I had a problem. When I went into the rehab, during the fight, I tore up my right knee, which suffers to this day. I tore it all up, NCL, ACL, all of it. I told the guy that ran the program, I told Dr. Sidney Snow, I said, you bring me my Bible, I'll go to rehab. Dallas is like, what? Dallas was shocked that I wanted a Bible. And I said, I need to turn my life around. I need to rededicate my life to the Lord. I need to get on my hands and knees right now and rededicate my life to the Lord. I need to do it today or I can't accept your program. I'm sorry. This part I need to take care of. They brought me a Bible in. Chapel guy came in for the Chicago Cubs, and we read the Bible together, and we read the Bible as long as we could, and then they finally wouldn't let him come in no more. Every morning I got up, I rededicated my life to the Lord, and I got on my hands and knees, and I prayed, and I read my Bible, and I accepted their program, and I got sober. I got out of the rehab. I remember the day I walked out. I knew I was never going to drink again. Not because of the Alcoholics Anonymous. It's a great program, but I knew I wasn't going to drink again because I'm going to follow the Lord. I want to be a Christian. I want to be a Christian. God laid down his life for me. I believe that with all my heart and all my soul. I don't want to use that no more in my life knowing I'm going to heaven, knowing my sins have been washed away. I know at some point I'm going to be accountable when I stand before the Lord. I remember uh, D.L. Moody or somebody, when they died, they said when they go to heaven, what are they going to do when they get to heaven? I don't remember the exact nature of what he said, but I think he said for the first 455,000 days, I want to just stare at Jesus and look at Jesus and be in his presence. And I was thinking, why don't I have that? Why don't I have that desire? And when I say that, I get goosebumps inside because... I did turn my life around. I did come out of there. I knew something was different when I came out of there. And everybody else would say, see what happens when he quits drinking? It wasn't to quit drinking because you can come out and be a sober drunk. It was that I was turned on for the Lord. People started to knock on my door and come in my room. I was the room that everybody, superstar, non-superstar, anybody that did drugs and drank, Anybody that smoked pot, they went to Dickie Knowles' room. Anybody that wanted to dip and play cards and order up, the, whatever you want to do, you come to my room. We sit around a table and we play cards. So we're isolated in sports more than you think we are because we don't trust the public. So, you know, we want, want people to see what we're doing. So they've come, they knock on my door, can't come to my room. We always have a roommate. I said, I want a single room. They can't knock on my door, can't come to my room. Why? He ain't smoking pot in my room. You're not drinking beer in my room. You're not playing cards in my room. Why? We know you're sober, but you got to have fun. I said, it's not the sober part. 
I've turned my life back over to the Lord. And that's what I'm going to do. Then the knock started to come again. I was like, why are they knocking on my door? I opened the door in anger. Dickie, can I talk to you? Shocked me that person came to my room. I said, yeah, come on in. I don't know what you got, man. I really don't. I know you've turned your life around, but can I talk to you? And the tears would come out of that big man's eyes, and I'd sit there and go, whoa. Maybe I knew I was going to be an EAP then. The Lord was preparing me for something else. And then the knock on the door again. Dickie, I'm having problems with my wife. Man, can you help me? I'm not a marriage counselor. Man. I'm trying to get my life together. What are you doing? But I was giving answers because God was giving them to me. I was praying with those men. Sometimes the best thing I could do was get on my hands and knees and pray with them. I couldn't believe how quick it turned. I was happy that it turned, trust me. I, be, I was the village idiot, and now people are bringing their problems into my room. I remember going to my mother's house, flying down to my mother's house and telling her and sharing with her. So you go to my mother's house. You see Dickie Knowles' pictures all over the wall. She had a... Several of them the same. She had an infatuation with everything that I did, articles, everything. My mother worked in a gas station. People used to come up to my mother and they'd say, I seen your son pitch on Game of the Week last week. And then that one night, on April 9th of 1983, they come to us, sorry about your son. I seen him on 60 Minutes. Now it turned back to the good thing. And my mother shared with me that day, you know, I never really liked baseball. I was happy you played baseball, but what you're doing now really makes me proud as a mother because that woman beat me over the head with this and finally I got it finally she laid the seeds and I finally got it and that's what my mother was most proud of my mother died at 59 years of age a very young woman and I remember when my mother was getting sick and I'd go down to Charlotte North Carolina spent three months with her and we're fellowshipping over the Bible we're not talking about baseball my mother used to take those little baseball cards that I brought. They're blank today. Some of them have it on the back. I had drug and alcohol messages on them. She loved those baseball cards. She told me one day when she got sick, you know what I'm most proud of as you as a man? She said, I'm most proud that you serve the Lord. And she goes, I ain't stupid. I know those little drug and alcohol messages are all about God too. I go, how do you know that, Mom? She goes, because I see my message on the back. Our lives are not made by the dreams that we dream, but by the choices that we make. I bet you use that to reach people. I go, yes, I do. How did you know that? Some people ask me about that verse. I can't put it out in schools. Not that verse. Some people ask me about that quote. I said, I got it from my mother. Now my mother's very proud of me. My mother's talking about all these things that went on in our life beforehand. Now she's sharing the truth with me. And then my mother got sick. I went back to, I had twin boys and a daughter, still do. And I had to go back to Philadelphia after I spent three months with her. You know, my career had ended. I got into another part of my life was baseball in a different way, helping people. And I got into it. And I remember when I first started working with the Phillies, they said, Dickie, you're doing this drug and alcohol program. We like it in schools. We'd like for you to do something else. And by the way, I used to go to schools and I would talk about God all the time to the point when schools would call into the Phillies and say, we love this program, Saves, as a program that I had. But he shares the gospel in here and he can't do that. Well, you know what? God's in control, not me. I did 3,000 school programs. Go check it out. 3,000 school programs. Over 2,200 2, of them in the Philadelphia area, in this Jersey, Philadelphia area. And I never once went into a school without sharing something out of this word. Not one time. I got in trouble for it probably about 360 times. But I'd do it over and over because my mother told me that's what I'm most proud of. So I kept doing it. So my mother's about to pass away, and I, I'm going out to a conference over here in... Uh, 
uh, Haverda Grace, Bobby Ackerman, the first writer of Children of Alcoholics, and a guy by the name of Father Martin who had the chalk talk. And I'm at the conference. Part of my education, I have to go. Might as well go here the best. So I'm down there. I pull in. And I see them both, and I see them. I said, how you doing, Joe? Joe Martin. He says, Dickie, I'm doing good. How are you? I said, my mom's sick. She's about to die. And he goes, really? I said, yeah. I said, I had to come home. I said, he said, what's wrong? I said, she's got lung cancer. He said, well, how long has she been? He said, doctor said she had three months to live. How long ago was that? Three months ago. I said, my mom, my mom don't think she's going to die. At least that's what I thought. And so, you know, I said, mom, you know what? God's in control of life. You're probably right. He'll take you when he wants you. We all have a number. So I said, you know, I'm up here, back home, didn't want to come to this conference, been away with my mother for three months, so I, I'm, I'm here. Phone rang. We can't have phones there. No cell phones. Phone rang. Front lady at front desk said, there's someone trying to reach you. Something's going on in your family. I thought, oh, my boys, my daughter. I just left my mom, so I went. I got the phone. Is this Dickie Knowles? I said, yes. Oh, I got to, hold on. My sister got on the phone. Dickie, this is Angie. Mom's dying. Wait a minute. Angie, I just spent three months with mom. We ate at Red Lobster the other night. What do you mean she's dying? Well, she's in a hospital. What do you mean? Well, she's in a hospital, and she didn't want you to know, and she's, she's dying. She's waiting on you to die. She's waiting on me to die? Angie, God's in control of life, not mom. That was my answer. Dickie, she's waiting on you to die. I got off that phone. I looked at Joe Martin, and I looked at Robert Ackerman. I said, hey, guys, I think I'm going to have to go. What's going on? You know, Father Martin, he's a priest. I said, well, my sister just called, and he said, go. I've seen it happen. Go. You think my mom's waiting on me? Well, I'd like for her to wait another year or two, to be honest with you. Maybe I'll stay away for two or three, four or five, six more years. So I got in my car, and I drove to North Carolina. I got there really late. I walked in. There's my sister and brother. And I walked in, and I said, hey, man, do me a favor. Go home, get some rest. I'll be here with mom. Mom was unresponsive. Mom, she, she was, I was so mad at the doctor. She, I was like, is she dead already? No. And I could see her breathing. So I did the one thing my mother always wanted to do was read the Bible. I opened up the Bible, and I read the Bible to her. And as I was reading the Bible to her, she was unresponsive at that point too. And as I'm reading the Bible, I'm reading it, and I'm turning the pages, and I'm reading it, and I finally came to the part that I wanted that she, I, when I tell you my mother was a simple woman, she loved the Lord. She didn't like rich people, though. That was a negative of her. She always felt like rich people. Maybe she was, I'm not even going to get political. That would be terrible to do that. But maybe she was one of those people that just felt like that, you know, we should give to others. When my mother would take us to a goodwill sometimes, she'd, and, and she'd make us get in the box and dress in there, she'd say, if you take the clothes, you don't have to go buy them. You're doing them a favor. I'd go, Mom, that's called stealing. We don't want to do that. She would go out and rob people's garbage, not rob them, but take things from garbage. She went to a yard sale one day and bought a ring and said, look at this ring, Dickie, and this beautiful. I said, Mom, I gave you a Belks card. You want to shop at Kmart. I won the World Series. We won the World Series. And I bought you a home, and you gave it to my sister. Mom, what can I do for you? She goes, I'm fine. Three months later, she said, I sold that ring. Guess how much I got for it? I said, how much? She said, two grand. It was all gold and diamonds. I said, Mom, I'm going to yard sales with you, but no, really. But my mother was that simple. She was so simple. So when I went down and I started to read, and I came up on that, the rich man and the beggar, I was like, Mom, I'm going to read this to you. And she's not responsive. Response, response. She's showing no response. And I'm reading to her. I'm reading to her. That's the only thing I, I read to her for 30 minutes. Then I fell asleep. Quarter to six, the nurse came in. And she came in and she said, Dickie. I said, what? She said, she's gone. Man, I don't know. 
We all have mothers and fathers. You only have one. You don't know how you're going to react until it happens. It crushed me. I looked over. I said, wait a minute. No, no, no. This can't happen. What do you mean she's gone? And the nurse looked at me and said, Dickie, she died in peace. I go, what do you mean? I looked. My mother was looking this way the whole time, and she's looking right at the Bible with a big smile on her face. And I knew at that moment she knew that she had done what she was supposed to do on this earth. She had been doing it since I was this little. And she had carried it right out. She was ready to go. Did God allow her to? I don't know. I know there's a lot of miracles we don't see to this day. But I remember my sister busting in when they came in. I called my sister and brother, and they ran in. And I remember it like yesterday. Dickie, I told you she waited on you to die. She came in this world all alone, and she left this world all alone with you. But realistically, my mother taught me we're never all alone. And that's something that stayed with me into all of my times of trouble, to all the idiotic things that I did, to all the people that I hurt, and to all the people that, I, that probably I could never apologize to for the rest of my life. But all of a sudden, my mother's teaching came back to me. And I'd like to close with one thing and challenge every one of us in here and challenge myself most notably, I have unsaved people in my family. Sometimes we want to go give the word of God to everybody but the people in our family. And I have two sons, and they're saved, but they don't do what they should do. I know that. I have a daughter that don't go to church. It breaks my heart. But you know what the Lord wants us to do is to keep going, to keep giving the word, to do it with love. Sometimes I, don't, I want to do it with hardcore muscle and not the fist no more. I've only been in one fight, one fight since I was saved. Andres Galarago charged me on the mound. Well, there's two, but I ran from the other one. I'm supposed to be the toughest guy around. But a guy charged me on the mound, and I was going, what do I do? And I'd heard it from all the people. What's going to happen with Dickie being a Christian now, as tough as he was? We don't want to tell the other team because he's our, he's our jackhammer, man. He's the guy that comes in and He's in the game, man. Everybody, he busts up everything. Nobody's going to hit anybody when he's in the game. And then and I remember thinking to myself, what am I going to do when the first hitter charges me? Well, I got a little Old Testament in me too. <laughs> so I defended myself. And Andres Galarago shared the Word of God with me later on. And we sat there and talked as Christians. So you never know how the Lord's going to work. But the way the word, Lord worked in my life through my mother is the way we men should be working in our lives, through our families, and through others. The greatest gift that we have is life. When I was with the Phillies, after my baseball career ended, God was taking me and ringing me out in many ways. I didn't want to be a community service guy. I didn't want to be an EAP either because I knew Chris. I mean, I knew exactly what that was going to entail. That was going to make me work a lot harder than I was willing to work. Being an EAP, call 24 hours, seven days a week, it's not an easy place to be. And I'm walking through the community service department, which the Lord was molding me to do to get me in this job, and I had no idea. I, I, I asked for jobs that people said, you'll never do that, and I'm doing it. That sounds God's truth because of the Lord. And I'm walking through one day, and the phone rang, and Kelly picks it up, and I just told Kelly... I'm not going on the Minority Sunshine Foundation airlifts. I got a family. My mother told me, Dickie, I want you to help those in need. And if you ever get a chance, cancer would be a good 
foundation for you. Homeless would be a good foundation for you. And I'm like, okay, mom, forgot about it, turned it off. I work with more homeless people than you'll ever know about. And I'm sitting there going, okay, Billy Sample, Sunshine Foundation. All right, I'll go, I'll go over and see that kid Jackie up in New Hope. Yeah, and he died. I was like, whoa, holy cow, I don't want to do that no more. He wanted to see a Phillies player. 64 hour lifts later, I'm still doing it. And the Sunshine Foundation, born right here in Philadelphia, you take men, men, real strong men, and they chaperone these kids, and they take them all over Disney World for one day. You fly them down. You fly them back. So I'm doing it. I'm loving it. I don't know where it came from. It just happened. And then one day, I get a call. Kelly answers the phone. Billy Sample, yeah, Dickie Knowles is here. I just told her, if that's Billy Sample, I'm not here. I just came from an airlift in Atlanta. I got to be home for a little while. I got I to spend some time with my family. She goes, yeah, he's here. I go, yeah, I am. Well, why are you lying? Okay, I'm not. Okay, give me the phone. Yeah, there's a kid up here once ago. He, he's a big Phillies fan. I said, okay. All right. What's his name? Jimmy something. I forget his name. I think his name was Jackie. The other boy was Jimmy. His name was Jackie. So I said, all right, put your Phillies uniform and come out. Okay, I will. I'll put my Phillies uniform on. This is December, by the way. I went to the gas station at 440 in the morning. I'm sitting there filling up my gas, and it's raining and snowing, and some other guy pulls in beside me and says, hey, you with the Phillies? Are you guys playing today? I looked at my watch, and I said, it's 445. It's December to like 17th. Who knows what it was? It's December something. I said, I don't have time for an intervention. I get in my car, and I take off. I don't know what was on that guy's mind. I get up there. I got my full Phillies uniform on. Football player only has his shirt on. I go, now I got it. I could. So I get on. I'm going, I can't wait to see this kid, Jackie. I get on. I'm walking on. There he is. He's waving his hand. He goes, hey, are you the old Phillies pitcher? I said, yes. Yeah, I am. I get that a lot. He goes, I love John Crook. I love Lenny Dykstra. I love Darren Dalton. I said, hey, kid, I'm with the 80 team. We won. They lost. No, I didn't ever do that. But I walked over to him, and he's so charismatic the way he's speaking. He goes, man, I can't wait to get to Disney World. I can't wait. He said, let me tell you something. And he said, Mr. Knowles, you believe in heaven? I was like, I was about to answer that, like, yeah. And he goes, well, guess what? He says, uh, he says I, I got to ask you a question. When you're playing baseball, when you're sliding, how do you do it? Are you guys flying through the air? You hit and you pop up. How do you do that? I was about to answer that. And then I was, I was sitting there, and he goes, my mother tells me when I get to heaven, I'm going to get a new set of, and I looked down, and boy, didn't have any legs. I went, oh, my Lord. And compassion overcame me. And behind me was a six-foot-seven, 245-pound girl, and her name was Keisha. She lived on B in Allegheny Street. And I'm sitting there, and I'm going, wow. And then Keisha, when, when he asked me, he said, when I get to heaven, I'm going to get a new set of legs. He said, is there baseball in heaven? I don't think anybody can answer that in here right now. And when I went over there, he says, how does it feel when you pop up? And then Keisha went, he don't know. He's a pitcher. He didn't hit. I said, I got 26 major league hits, and I kind of put my rear into her. She's negative, you know, like a Philly booing fan. And I focused on Jackie. My arms are not long enough. Pat myself on the back. Took him on every ride in Disney World. We went everywhere on Disney World. Gave him all $500 in my pocket. My wife used to say, don't put more than 200 in your pocket. You come back with nothing. Well, I put 500 that day, and I came back with nothing, and I love every minute of it. My arms are, oh, I felt good about myself. We met by the clock, got back on that plane, flying back to Trenton, New Jersey. Plane breaks down. We're getting in at 345 in the morning. Snow and sleet still coming down. All the families pick up their kids. They're leaving. Right before we landed, Keisha said, hey, Mr. Knowles, Keisha was the one that, when we were at the clock, got off the bus with Big Mike carrying her, the big police officer, and she turned around and hollered at me, Mr. Knowles, there is a Disney World, and you think when I get to heaven, God will let me build a magic kingdom? I'm like, wow. 
I know this is all fake, but this magic kingdom isn't. And I was like, wow, that girl had to change attitude. We're about to land. And she came up to me. She said, Mr. Knowles, you and that football player helped me out. I said, what do you need? She goes, I'd like to walk off this plane. I said, Keisha, I believe in miracles, but we're not going to be able to get you walk off this plane. You don't use your legs. She said, you just get me up and you hold me and that football player and I'll get the feel of walking. I go, why didn't I think of that? So we held her up and we started walking profusely sweating. We were at the front of the plane anyway to get her to the front. We got her to the front. We get ready to go off, you know, the edge of the plane to the stairway and there's a little gap. I said, Keisha, how do we get you over that? She said, throw me. We did, but we held on to her. It bounced. There's a seven-foot-two father at the end of the stairway, and he looks at her, and Keisha looks down and goes, Dad, look, it's a miracle. And that miracle word came out and hit me. She goes, look, it's a miracle. I'm walking. And I went, wow. And then all the families, all 200 of them, two, they all started to come back. They're coming back with their kids. All the kids are saying, come back. I want to see this. Jackie's gone. I don't even know where he is. And there's Keisha. She went one step, two step, three step, four step. She goes, let me go, let me go. And we let her go. And she fell into that father's arms, not a dry eye in the whole place. It's snowing. It's sleeting. And then when she landed in his arms, she goes, Dad, look. I know, I know what it feels like to walk. She said, Dad, it's a miracle. I know what it feels like to walk. That word hit me again. I was one of the guys that didn't have a dry eye. I'm looking down. I'm going, man, alive. How did this happen? Wow. I'm driving home thinking, hey, it was always a miracle these cops talk about carrying these kids something. I finally had mine. I'm the Christian. Was that really a miracle? I'm driving home. And as I'm driving home, I went to bed, said, that was it. A week later, my phone rang. And what miracle that happened came from the Word of God again. Miracle wasn't from Dickie Knowles. Miracle was from that little kid, Jackie. That little kid, Jackie, was witnessing to Keisha all the way down about what's in this Word about what God does for you, about what heaven's all about. That little kid, Jackie, knew where he was going, and he was telling Keisha. He was taking a word of God, telling Keisha. And I'm thinking, I'm seeing a miracle by what she's doing with her father. No, the miracle occurred between a little boy and a large girl. That miracle was, Jackie said, you know what life is, Keisha? Life is only what we're doing here for a short time. There's a better life ahead. God came, and Jackie shared with her John 3.16, and she, Keisha wanted to know about it. A little boy going to heaven and didn't want to go alone. A little boy going to heaven decided to tell some girl who had all the problems of the world, who was negative, who lived in a bad area, about the word of Jesus. So as we close here today, I just want to share that one thing with you. I know I've went too long, is to keep sharing the word of God. Keep bringing in the young people. We need to reach young people. We, as men, that's our obligation to be men and reach the young people. Thank you very much, and God bless you.